Okay, everybody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Doug. Uh, welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Uh, this week we're doing one of my picks. Uh, we are doing Nightcrawler 2014, directed by Dan Gilroy, which I believe is his first uh, movie that he directed, although he'd written other films. And it's his first X-Men picture also. I think that a lot of people... Nightcrawler was one of the oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. X-Men characters. Right. So I think... <clears throat> you like, threw me for a second there. No, I think a lot of people um, kind of assume that this is like... This is about the... Uh, the X-Men. This is an X-Men movie. I wonder how many people right. went to see it expecting that. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the X-Men and is much better for it. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, this is a good pick. Uh, you know, I, I never saw I think I saw it float by somewhere, but I never watched it. I'll, you know, it's funny because I did uh, see this in the theater, and I remember I saw it in a nearly empty theater, and I came into work the following day, and I was like, has anybody seen this? And, like, no one heard of it, and it kind of it kind of came and went. I mean, it made some money. They made it on a shoestring, and it, it certainly made its money back, but it wasn't a big movie at all. Right. It was an indie film. And, uh, you know, it, it, I guess, it was a successful indie film, even though it didn't get a ton of attention, but... Uh, you know, uh, Jake uh, Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. Yeah, he um, he helped. He was an executive producer on it, and I guess the, you know the director was um, relatively unknown. As a director, he'd written a bunch of movies before. He had right. about six or seven movies that he'd written before, and uh, but this is his first uh, directorial. Uh, role i guess he's made he's directed two movies since that i haven't seen he directed roman j israel esquire and velvet buzzsaw neither of which i've seen velvet buzzsaw just came out on netflix and it's getting the big uh, netflix promo treatment you know hmm. where they, they put it like it was it showed up at the top of my banner and i haven't seen it yet but let me tell you i'm gonna go see it now now i'm gonna yeah. watch it 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 stars by the way jake gyllenhaal and renee russo just like nightcrawler yeah, I think most of the movies that Dan Gilroy has made um, have that team in them. And uh, his uh, Dan Gilroy's brother, I think, was pro is a director who's probably been a little more active. Um, I think he directed some of the um, um, action movies with. Uh, What's it called? The um, the the Born Identity movies. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, the Matt Damon franchise. Right. Um, do you want to give a summary? Yeah, I mean, this movie's about um, a character named Lou Bloom, who's basically a, he's a sociopath or a psychopath. He. Uh, yeah, I would say the former, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think they're the same thing. I think they have this. They're actually, you know, two ways to two ways to describe the same pathology. Um, he, um, he basically becomes, uh, he starts out as a thief and he becomes a, a stringer. In other words, a guy who goes out on the streets of Los Angeles, in his case at night and shoots film video to sell to uh, news programs, to sell to local stations for their news coverage. And as you can imagine, um, the gorier, the better, the scarier, the better, the more, um, uh, demonstrative of potential risk to the viewers, um, 
the better. In other words, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. If it bleeds in your neighborhood, especially. And um, he uh, he become he's he's extremely uh, motivated and uh, he sells things to uh, Rene Russo, who's the basically like the producer of the TV station, the news director overnight. Right. And she's supposed to be kind of like on the, the down slope of her career and she's at a crummy station and, you know, and yeah. like she's her career needs some help. And, you know, the, she and Lou are able to sort of essentially use each other, although it doesn't really go the way she thinks it's going to go. Right. And and he I mean, he he really has no empathy. And the way the, the movie goes, he, he ends up he maims, he kills sort of in the line of his work. Um, and he, he manipulates sort of a story in a way so that he can keep, um, uh, keep selling things and sort of keep the trajectory of the intensity of the stuff he's selling going higher because he, he comes upon a, a murder scene in an upscale neighborhood, uh, and he goes in the house and basically films graphic scenes of all the bodies and the blood and, he actually films the the perpetrators of the crime right when he first gets there. He gets them on camera, and he he he, he plans everything out. He doesn't really tell anyone. Uh, he doesn't have scruples at all. So it's really about his his career trajectory over probably you know what's essentially several months doing this, and uh, he starts out in like this you know horrible beater car, and then he moves up to a Dodge challenger um a red a red dodge yeah, challenger which is amazing you know i'm not a muscle car guy but <laughs> sorry if i was gonna get a muscle car it would be a dodge challenger ever since natural born killers that's also the car that mickey and mallory drive in natural born killers i was like that is a nice looking car <laughs> yes yeah, fast too, I, th- I, I think in, i think in natural born killers it's a 1970 dodge challenger which doesn't look that different believe it or not right well when they when when chrysler now fiat chrysler um reissued that car they uh they reissued cars with a strong um uh look of the old cars but obviously they're modern vehicles but they they're very reminiscent of the the original muscle cars one sort of theme in the movie is that Gyllenhaal's Lou has, you know, not just no morals, but no limits, you know, like he, he will only do what advances his personal cause. And he has, you know, he really has no emotions for anyone around him. Right. He lacks any empathy for others distress, which is basically what, um, what a sociopath is. Uh, they feel no, um, they they feel no discomfort from the pain of others, right? So he is uh, he he absolutely typifies that. He knows how to manipulate. I mean, he knows the way most people are, but they don't really understand it. They just are able to sort of use. They're able to communicate and use the way they know other people's emotions work to their advantage, but they don't have any empathy. Right. He's very manipulative, and he's successful at it. Yeah. He. It's it's interesting because he he really he, he's really kind of a schlub in the beginning, uh, even though yeah he's, he's desperate he's desperate right and, but even though he's already sort of demonstrating how manipulative he is in the beginning he just he's unsuccessful in the beginning he's a small time thief and grifter basically, um, 
and, I mean, he's, he's stealing scrap metal and selling it. Um, it's pretty low. Um, for pennies. Right. And, uh, but you know, he, he, he has one great lucky stroke in that he, he comes across Bill Paxton one night. Right. And Bill Paxton's already a relatively successful stringer and he gets to watch him work at this accident. And, um, that's where he gets the idea that, um, this could be successful business for him. And I, I think he gets the, he's interested by it. And I think he gets the inkling that it sort of suits his talents because he's, basically he's able to work to exist and work and function and um depend on others misery without it bothering him so he's able to work in in miserable stressful environments where there are accidents and murders and find them gore right, right. And, and all and and human distress and misery and he's able and he, to, and he can profit from it. He can capitalize on it, right, without any reservation because it doesn't bother him at all. The director I saw in an interview said that he viewed Lou as an infection, like a disease, you know, and like he kind of like he destroys everyone around him. Like he destroys his assistant, Rick. He destroys the Rene Russo character. He essentially murders or, or attempts to murder Bill Paxton. Yeah, he at least maims him. And then he does murder the guy that worked for him for 30 bucks a night, who's super desperate also. Right, Rick, uh, played by Riz Ahmed. Right. And, you know, did you see Gilroy uh, was uh, intending to, he, his initial inspiration was um, was a film about Ouija, the, who was a crime photographer in New York in the 40s and 50s. Uh, I think up through the 60s, I think he had a long career. But Ouija's um, photographs, which are a particular type of black and white photojournalism, um, are basically a lot of photographs of crime scenes. But they're not um, anything like like this. They're not, um, uh, what's, what's the word, uh, Exploitative. He's not as prurient. Yeah, they're not exploitative in the same way. They're just they're they're documentarian and they're art and they're art. Um, and you know the the movie about Ouija, where, <coughs> sorry, believe it or not, Joe Pesci played him. Yeah. Um, it, it was I think it's called The Public Eye, and it was not good. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't. Did he? I don't think Dan Gilroy. Had anything to do with that? They just made another movie about Ouija. Yeah, no, that's like that movie is like twenty five years, ago. right? But uh, I guess that 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 idea turned into this, and this is a much more uh, a different fictional take, and and more and more extreme. You know, I I thought one of the most interesting things in the movie is the way that he is able to turn the tables on Rene Russo. Mm -hmm. You know, he initially comes to her as a beggar. You know, like just desperate to sell anything he can film for a few bucks. And then it doesn't take long before he is essentially in the driver's seat in their relationship. And he's having sex with her essentially at his command because right. he knows that he could just when he becomes successful and popular, he could just pull his stuff and take it somewhere else. And she'll probably get fired because she won't be able to retain him. And, you know, you don't actually ever see them intimate. You actually never see them touch in the entire movie. But it's it's made explicitly clear that he 
is basically telling her when and how to have sex, you know, at all of his command, and she's trapped. Right. And he doesn't have any problem with this. No, he plans the whole thing out. But, you know, it, it's interesting. And, like, you know, I've used this phrase in the podcast before. Like, I like this movie because they pull the trigger. Like, they kind of go over the edge. Like, they really, they don't just have him be bad. They have him be very bad. You know, like, they have him do, they have him do, you know, justifiably cruel and awful things. Like, to really push the story further. And if they'd had, you know, a, a softer sensibility about it, the whole movie doesn't work. Like, Lou really has to be a sociopath. Right. And, and you know? what, what they do right is um, you get to watch him kind of unfold and you watch him think and it's the story unfolds and yet you can also follow his thinking. So it's not just that it's totally mysterious. It's not like watching Memento and trying, there's not, there's no puzzle behind it, but he, um, you know, he, uh, he has, his motives are understandable. His actions are, understandable and his motivation and their and his actions are consistent right they're consistent you know? and comprehensible however um creepy and made more creepy by the fact that he's mysterious in a way because his pathology is sort of mysterious yet he's 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 comprehensible um and and you know and on top of that there's the larger kind of social commentary issues that echo um, the movie Network from like 75 or 76. Right. Um, and we had talked about, I think, I think our discussion of Altered States, which was written by Patty Chayefsky, who also wrote Network, springboarded us to this podcast today. Right. right. And, and uh, you know, Network, um, Faye Dunaway's character uh, is sort of a, uh, or rather, I should say, Renee Russo's character is a um, sort of a shadow, uh, yeah, a updated version of Faye Dunaway, who's somebody that comes in and basically is realizes that modern news is a business for profit, and that people have just the most um, rather base tastes and want to see blood and guts, essentially. And this movie, I think, is essentially the heir to network. I mean, you could almost view this as, you know, like its successor because it addresses not all, but a great many of the exact same points. But, you know, it's interesting just to sort of step back. Like, <clears throat> we live in a different era now. I mean, this movie is only a few years old, but, you know, like there's plenty of sites on the Internet, you know, where you can see the most extreme violence, uh, and, you right. know, even Reddit, you know, Reddit has, you know, NSFW, NSFL tags on a lot of videos that show extreme violence or, or people being maimed or killed. And it, it is amazing how accessible that is in the modern world. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, like the most the most commercial of those is, for example, LiveLeak, which has a lot of things on it. But LiveLeak doesn't hesitate to put up, you know, gore. And but people's tolerances is. is so much higher. I think it, it takes a lot to scare or, or surprise people or discuss them now. I think especially if you're watching it on your phone, you know, the phone sort of shrinks it down and bite sizes it. And it, it, it feels more remote from reality. Whereas if you were seeing that up close and sort of living color, you know, when you see it on your whatever three by five inch screen, it's not the same. And that's how most people watch stuff. Even before that, you know, there were First, there were tabloid newspapers, then there were tabloid-style TV shows, and 
they didn't just cover, um, you know, Mel Gibson's latest uh, Trials and Tribulations. They covered um, the sort of similar unpleasant stories right. as well. Well, when we were kids, I mean, Faces of Death. Right. right. But that was I mean, really I actually, fringy. It was really fringy, but you could get it at the blockbuster. You know, and I imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast remember and saw Faces of Death. Sure. You know. You know, Gyllenhaal did a lot in this movie sort of with his physicality. Like, uh, he's obviously real thin. You know, uh, they wanted him to look like a hungry animal. Like, the animal they had in mind was a coyote. I read that they were even going to call the film Coyote because they were so, like, hooked on that that term. You know, his hair is sort of long and stringy and looks sort of greasy and dirty. Like, you kind of get the sense that, you know, like, he's not just emotionally dirty, he's physically dirty. And and I didn't actually notice this, but I read after the fact that he, he almost never blinks. Like, they go to right. great pains to never have Lou blink to make him look sort of inhuman. His eyes are wide open and he stares. He really does. Even, there's no blinking, but he's his gaze is fixed and um and cold all the time you really have to give it to gyllenhaal i you know i remember seeing him for the first time in october sky which was uh his not not his first film but it's kind of his first starring role and i remember when i saw october sky like i'd never heard of him and just being really impressed with him and then you know right after that he has donnie darko and i mean he he really makes a series of just big movies one after the other with very, very few missteps. It's very, I mean, he's he's good at picking his properties and he does a good job with them. Like I'm looking through his filmography, there's very, very few missteps in it. And he, you know, like I can't think of a bad performance by him. He might be the best actor of his generation, you know. He's terrific in this too, in particular. This is a really great uh, vehicle for him and not as, as you know, Brokeback Mountain or, you know, there are plenty of, um, big name pictures he's been in, but, um, this one, I mean, he's really, he really, the whole, he's, he's the most, the biggest star in this movie by far. He's in every single scene. He really, the whole movie is about his gaze and his, we're watching him think things through and how, how he reacts, what he does. It's really watching him move. Right. And, and, you know, it. <clears throat> sorry for all the coughing. I have the flu, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but that's my dedication to the podcast. Um, but, you know, he reminds me of no one as much as Alex in A Clockwork Orange. Hmm. You know, also a sociopath. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, and Alex, you know, Alex is written differently. And, you know, A Clockwork Orange is structured in a way that Alex is talking to you as his sort of confidant and co-conspirator. And you sort of root for him, even though, you know, he's sort of like a a, a gang rapist and a murderer. You still find yourself nonetheless hoping that Alex comes out well. You don't hope that so much for Lou. Like, I remember when I was watching this, I actually thought that Lou was going to die at the end, but he doesn't. He prospers. Right. It has a happy, unhappy ending. It has a happy ending for Lou and an unhappy ending for every single other character. Right. You know, no one comes to a good end uh, besides besides Lou. You know, I mean, Rick gets killed. Bill Paxton, I forget his character's name, gets killed. And, and Rene Russo gets trapped in this in essentially like a form of sexual slavery. Right. 
you know, and there's no, and you don't get any sense at the end of the movie that anything is going to change. He's going to keep, he's going to keep this going. Well, also it's, it's, it's not just that that's even the least part of it. Her whole career is beholden to him. Um, you know, she, she's beholden to him in every way. It's, it's not just, uh, she's, she's trapped by him in general. Right. And she, you know, she's kind of trapped by life before she meets him and he's, he figures that out and he realizes that despite her sort of bravura and sort of air of authority and power that she's extremely vulnerable. Like he's like, you can imagine that most people around her don't pick that up because she's so brash and brassy and he's able to sort of see through that and, and manipulate her and take advantage of that. I mean, that, I mean, that's, I mean, to me in some ways that's even darker than, you know, the, the way he treats Rick, right? Because it's, it's established from the very get-go that he has no respect for Rick, right? He views Rick as essentially his pawn, right? He doesn't even, you know, he never talks to Rick like a colleague in any way. Right. Well, he, he, there's, he doesn't need to baby Rick to get anything out of him. At least, right. Rick's even more desperate than he is at the beginning of the movie. Right. I mean, the only reason that he ever treats anyone with any... Um, politeness at all is because he needs something from them right and i it's kind of implied i don't remember but i think it's kind of implied that like rick's a drug addict or at least some you know a former drug addict like he's disheveled and dirty and you know he looks like he's on the street like i think it's implied that he's essentially homeless or close to it when lou hires him Mm -hmm. you know his his only qualification is you know can he drive and and you know does he have a cell phone like that's that's it like does does he have a pulse is all really Lou needs. Right. You know, I mean, what's interesting, too, is the way that like when Rick is dying, you know, Lou, you know, Lou kind of reveals himself because he kind of, you know, here there's no danger. He can say what he wants to Rick because Rick is going to die. And he he sort of tells him, like, I just can't let you live. You know, like, I can't work with you. You have potentially leverage over me. That's the end. And, you know, and as Rick lays dying, you know, his probably. His his final thoughts are the realization, you know, to the extent that he has been had and manipulated and tricked by Lou. Right. Um, I don't know. Like, and the other thing, too, that's worth mentioning is the car scenes are amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, this movie has a lot of tension and scenes in cafes and diners and the network. But there's a lot of amazing car footage where, you know, once he graduates up from the Chevy shitbox to the to the Challenger you know, he is roaring through town in Los Angeles uh, and the car looks great and the night scenes are filmed really well. And the, the car chases, you know, they don't feel cartoony. Like you're not watching the Fast and the Furious. Like cars get smashed up, mm-hmm. you know, people get hurt in the accidents. Like it, it it feels genuine. Like this is what could really happen if you're driving reckless, recklessly at breakneck speeds through Los Angeles. Like it's going to end in a crash. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's great. I think Renee Russo deserves a lot of credit. I mean, this is... She's great in it. By the way, the director uh, um, is married to Renee Russo. Oh, is he really? Ah. Well done. He's So she's 64 and he's 59. So I guess they're pretty close in age. You know, she kind of can't... I never heard of Renee Russo until In the Line of Fire. You know, that kind of brought her to my attention in 1993. But I guess she was in Lethal Weapon 3 before that. But I I remember seeing her in, uh, in The Line of Fire. God bless Clint Eastwood. Um, mm-hmm. And really being impressed with her. And I, I've probably seen her in a dozen movies since then. She's oh, had a pretty good... She started out as a supermodel. 
It's been in a ton of movies. You know, I think that this is kind of like an underrated unsung movie that I'm telling you, like if you ask 10 people, nine out of 10 of them didn't see this. Nine out of 10 of them didn't even hear of it. Right. You know, but I don't know. I wonder if this had a wide release. I saw this in a regular mainstream theater, not an art theater, but I know that it also played at our art theater in town here. So it may have had sort of a mixed release where it wasn't in a lot of big theaters. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just really well done. Like it's, it's, you know, again, to use your phrase, it's the greased rail. Like the whole movie is really, really taut and, you know, quick. It's two hours, but it feels much shorter. Yeah, it really moves along. It rolls out, the story rolls out in a, in an interesting way and in a, um, it's well-paced, as you say, you know, it, it, it feels quick. It's a little sad to see Bill Paxton. You know, I was a big Bill Paxton fan, always, yeah. always have been. And, you know, now that, now that he's passed on, you know, I forgot for a little bit that he was in this as I was rewatching. I was like, oh, Bill Paxton, you know. This is one of his last movies, isn't it? It's got to be close to it because he he died. He had a heart surgery that went sour. Hmm. Uh, he let's see his last movie is uh, the circle. Yeah, so this is 2014, and he dies, I believe, in 20, 2017. Yeah, he dies in early twenty seventeen. Um, so, but you know, like I mean, ever since Weird Science, The Terminator. You know, Aliens, Apollo 13, Titanic. I mean, like, what didn't Bill yeah. Paxton find his way into? He showed up all over the place. <clears throat> yeah, he had, I know he had rheumatic heart disease, and I think he died, I think he died of some sort of cardiac or valve surgery. Poor guy. Hmm. Um, I don't know, anything else on Nightcrawler? I, I'm going to watch his next film that's on Netflix. I didn't even know that that was on Netflix. I'm going to watch that tonight. Anything else on, on Nightcrawler? I'll, I'll, we'll put up some links to some key scenes and maybe a little bit of network too, just so that people can sort of see like it's uh, it's forebearer, so to speak. Yeah, networks they are really is really in the classic category, I would say. You know, it's funny because um, just like um, one of the movies I mentioned in the last podcast, I read the Mad Magazine parody of Network years before I ever saw it. I remember when I actually saw it, I had forgotten about the the Mad Magazine parody, and I just <laughs> kind of knew everything that was going to happen. And I looked at my dad and I was like, is this where they go? I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And my father was like, how did you know? You know, and I was like, I had read it in Mad Magazine. But, you know, like Network, um, it, it looks super dated now, but it's pretty relevant. You know, we're living in the era of 24-hour cable news. Like, this movie is relevant today. Network is relevant today. Like, it shows you, like, people are people and they want, you know, they want to go to the base stuff, you know? Network is so relevant and it's so funny because you watch cable news and then it it's incredible how relevant network is. And I think that millennials don't know that anything prior to 1990 existed in many ways. Sorry, millennials. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you could draw a line kind of through, you know, network with a, a side, you know, uh, I guess to, to Nightcrawler, you know, almost ending up with Itania because Itania is all about tabloid journalism as well. Yeah. You know, explicitly discuss tabloid journalism, you know? Right, and networks really it had a huge impact um, for years, for for decades. It still has an impact whether people know it or not. And, it, it you know, if you watch network today, it looks good. You know, it's so well done. I mean, and really this, I mean... Faye Dunaway steals everything. I mean, the movie has, you know, William Holden and Robert Duvall and other people in it, but really, like, you remember 
you remember Faye Dunaway's Diana in that movie because she is just a razor blade, you know, and she's she's cutting through everyone. All right. Well, we'll put up some links. All right. All right. Anything else? Go take some. uh, My Tamiflu. All right, hopefully next time I'm not febrile, everybody. All right. All right, thanks. See you.